Hey everyone, Paul here. You're listening to part two of a series entitled Christ and Culture. I highly recommend before listening any more to this podcast that you go back and you listen to episode 27, Christ and Culture from Jesus Freaks to Christian Nazis. If you haven't listened to that one yet, today's episode will not make as much sense as it could, but perhaps maybe you're somebody that's already read the works of Dwight Hopkins and H.R. Niebuhr. If that's the case, then sure, jump right in with us. So if you've listened to episode 27, part one of this Christ and Culture series, let's do just a little bit of a review of some of the important terms just to kind of maybe refresh your memory. I know it's probably been a whole week since you last listened to it, or maybe you're kind of getting caught up. Maybe you like to binge these, as I've been told. Some people like binging this podcast, which is fun. I've never been binged before. <laughs> but So let's re- review some of the terminology. First of all, what is culture? Remember Dwight Hopkins highlighted that culture has these three ingredients, these these very uh, interdependent aspects that make up culture. There's culture as spirit, which is the the narrative, the, the values of that culture, their beliefs about reality. You have culture as aesthetic, which is the way that a culture expresses their spirit through works of art and beauty, et cetera, et cetera. And then you've got culture as labor, which is how the culture expresses its spirit, how it creates aesthetic, but also how it works, how it labors, how people do and choose certain careers, even the entire economic system of how goods and services are exchanged. That is the culture's labor. All right, so everybody remember that part. Good, good, good. Okay. Then we talked about that throughout history, Christians have wrestled with how they should relate to the culture that they find themselves in, the metaculture. Of course, you have all sorts of different subcultures, and a metaculture is made up of all sorts of different culture pockets, from religious culture to political culture to science culture, arts culture, entertainment culture. But Christians in particular, this is what we've been focusing on, is Christians have wrestled for the past two millennia, and even Jews before that have wrestled with how they should relate to the culture that they find themselves in, the metaculture that they find themselves in. So then the question then becomes, what is Christ's relationship to culture? Where is Christ in culture? And we've been using the work of H.R. Niebuhr, the 20th century theologian who had this important seminal work, Christ and Culture. And we've been using his typology and terminology to kind of help us unpack and wrestle with ultimately where our own experiences have been, which sort of position uh, towards culture have have we been most familiar with. And then we want to kind of process, well, is there a better option? Are there better options than what I've experienced so far? So we started with these two extreme positions. We started by exploring Christ against culture and then what Niebuhr calls Christ of culture. 
Now, before we get into, as I promised at the end of the last episode, the three mediating positions between these two extremes, I want to talk a little bit about how, in an odd way, Christ against culture and Christ of culture Christians have some odd similarities in their theology. Now, on the surface, you might not think that a mid-90s fundamentalist evangelical who has just got done listening to the latest Ken Ham lecture after going to the DC Talk Jesus Freak concert would have much in common with, let's say, what we might call the sort of kind of progressive, woke Christian of 2019. But though there are vast theological differences between the Christ against culture and Christ of culture position, there are some weird ways that those theologies actually end up coalescing into some similar behaviors and attitudes and similar theologies. For the Christ against culture camp and the Christ of culture camp, there are very distinct in-groups and out-groups. You want to be a part of the in-group and not the out-group. And in many ways, this is how you experience salvation or you become righteous is by following the guidelines prescribed within your theology that make you part of the in-group and not part of the out-group. Using Dwight Hopkins' terminology here for a moment, the Christ against culture group, the spirit of the Christ against culture group is a, is a narrative that places primary emphasis on the fall of humanity and the sinfulness of human reasoning. So the in-group, the identifying markers then of the in-group become those who follow the special revelation of Christ and the scriptures reject human sinful reasoning and then do a really good job of following all of the legalistic prescriptions for how one should live in order to not be assimilated by the larger culture. You do that stuff, you're on the in-group. And as much as you might hear in that sort of world that your salvation and your righteousness and your right standing with God is only because of faith in Christ, in some ways that only seems to sort of heighten your sense that to maintain your righteousness and to maintain your right standing is by living by faith. But while this sounds like biblical terminology, faith in the Christ against culture mindset is an act of rebelling against reason, rebelling against culture. And then the major problem, so many people that have kind of grown up with the Christ against culture mindset experience is that when they don't abide by the legalistic definitions of the in-group, out-group dynamics, when they, when they come too close to doing things that look like they're going to be culturally assimilated, oftentimes what they experience in these communities is not a, well, we want to make sure that you don't get assimilated, so we're going to continue to welcome you and bring you in, and we're going to have charitable dialogue with you about the differences of our opinion. What many people experience in those Christian communities is once you start flirting with the culture, once you start flirting with 
what appears to be cultural assimilation, once you start questioning the rules of the in-group, what many people experience is an immediate kicking out of the in-group, that they are thrown out like a leper <laughs> to steal a line from from Heath Ledger's Joker, that, that they are essentially sent to the sort of cultural leper community where you are banished from that group, you're kicked out, you've had this, you know, a lot of young people experienced this who actually, you know, grew up in, or even in their adult years, it's not just for young people, were in one of these Christ against culture communities, and let's say they had a question, they're wrestling with their own sexuality. Well, so many so many people that grew up in that sort of environment, once they started wrestling with that or having questions about that, many of them experienced a banishment from the Christ against culture communities because they were no longer abiding by the in-group rules. So as we talked about last episode, the, the pendulum swings. A lot of people that spend time in Christ against culture communities then find themselves reacting, carrying these hurts, carrying these questions into the other ditch, which was Christ of culture. But the sad thing here is that the theology of the Christ against culture worldview leads people to be just as legalistic. It's just a different kind of legalism. It leads to the same in-group, out-group dynamics. For the Christ of culture, Christian communities, because Christ is to be found solely in reason, in natural law, in the progressive movements of human history, the outgroups then become those who are simply less cultured. And this is a very, very potent dynamic. And, and people people aren't aware of it when they leave their Christ against culture communities and then they find themselves just running into the arms of Christ of culture. It can, for the reasons like we've already talked about in the last episode, because they can't in their Christ against culture communities, they, they can't experience, they don't know how to deal with the cognitive dissonance of going, I know reason works, I know science works, I experience a sense of transcendence in this beautiful piece of art or music, this work of culture. So there must be something in culture that God is doing. And then the, as they jump into the other ditch, and now God becomes nothing more, Christ becomes nothing more than a synonym for the progressive movement of culture. They What they don't realize is that what they're going to experience is the same kind of legalism. Because to be in the in-group in Christ of culture, to be in the in-group of Christ of culture means that you have to constantly be in step with the progressive movement of your day. Your righteousness is determined by your ability to do the law. There's just a new law. And it's... <laughs> Meet the, like, you know, as the who saying it, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. You've just traded your cheesy Christian t-shirt for a political sign that you now have to place in your front yard in order to be part of the community. You've traded your problems that you have with science for now problems with things like the incarnation or the trinity. You trade in the shame-based purity culture of 
the Christ against culture communities, for a new master, the one who enslaves you to every possible sexual whim and appetite that might be under the sun. And for some reason here in America, it seems that people shift politically when they move out of Christ against culture communities to Christ of culture communities. And they they move from adopting the worldview of Rush Limbaugh to simply adopting the political worldview of Rachel Maddow. And yet, here are so many of you who listen to this program, many of you who I'm personal friends with, you feel like you don't fit in either world. You fit, feel as if you are in the outgroup of both worlds. And for a lot of people, I think this is one of the reasons why so many actually just end up becoming nuns, N-O-N-E-S, is they go, I, I feel like I, I will never be able to make it into the in-group and live in the in-group in either one of those camps. So I'm just checking out. I'm done with Christianity or church attendance. I, I'm tired of playing the game that I feel like I have to play to be in one of two in-groups. Thankfully, though, those two types, those two theological perspectives are not the only two options available. In Christ and culture, again, this work I'm referring to in the language that I'm using in this podcast that comes from H.R. Niebuhr, there are these mediating positions between those two camps, between those two ditches. So I want to explore those median options, those mediating options between those two extremes now. And as you're listening, be interesting. I'd love to hear from you after you guys get done listening to this podcast, this episode. I'd love to hear from you which one of these three seems to be the best position. Certainly Niebuhr has his own opinion and some of the language is even skewered in a way that that makes it really clear what his opinion is on this. But there have been, there's been really, really good sound theological voices in each of these three mediating perspectives that we're going to talk about right now. So it'd be interesting to hear from you which one you feel as if this one makes the most sense. Or if there is even just one, maybe it's you use somehow a combination of these three. Let's talk about that. So if you don't like either of those two extreme options, the first option... Niebuhr presents as a sort of mediating option is what we can call, or what he calls, Christ above culture. In this view, the fundamental issue is not between Christ and culture or church and the world, but between God and man. Because nature and all of creation was created as good and ordered, the arrangement of that good ordering and the good God behind it is discernible through reason. So Christ above culture places a high, heavy emphasis on the goodness of reason, the usefulness of reason. But where it's different from Christ of culture is that Christ above 
above culture presents reason as being incomplete. It's, it, it does not give us complete access to God because of the presence of sin. So culture is a product of human activity. Therefore, sinful rebellion against God can be expressed in culture. It's very much possible. So the things that people in that Christ against culture camp see as, boy, there is real evidence of sinful rebellion against Christ in our culture. People in the Christ above culture camp would go, yeah, that's true. Because there is this, there is this thing called the fall. And because of the fall, there is evidence of sinful rebellion against God present in culture. Yet, Yet, where it differs from Christ against culture is that culture, in this view, is also sustained by the grace of God. So what's truly needed then is not a wholesale rejection of culture or a wholesale acceptance of culture. What is needed then is a synthesis of revelation and reason. With the revelation of Jesus calling out to that which is dysfunctional in culture. And simultaneously, the revelation of Christ also illumines what is good about culture. To put it another way, we could say that Christ above culture affirms that nature or general revelation and the gospel or special revelation both come from God. All right, so there's an affirmation of both general revelation and special revelation, natural law and divine law. They both come from God. And the Christ above culture camp says, you know what? They both come from God and they don't contradict. There just may be some missing or even at times malevolent information in culture as a result of human sinfulness. If you're looking for an example in history of someone that embodies this Christ above culture approach, probably the best example would be Thomas Aquinas. So that Thomistic tradition, and in many ways the the Catholic tradition, frequently embodies this Christ above culture approach, which probably helps make sense of why, you know, throughout history, though there has been a tension at times, right? between the Catholic Church and science. Uh, We think, obviously, of the the case of of Galileo, for example, where there has been this idea of uh, general revelation and special revelation being at odds. In more recent history, Catholics have been far friendlier to scientific advancement and development than evangelicals have. In fact, you know, as many of you know, that it was a, a Catholic priest who using mathematics and astronomy was the first to propose the the origin of the universe in the Big Bang. So obviously there's some some strengths to taking this sort of theological attitude towards culture. We might say that one of the strengths of this theological posture is that one can develop an ability to balance the presence of Christ being both within culture and outside of it as its source. And, and this gives Christians a navigable roadmap for, part, 
for participating in the institutions of culture, which is something that Christ Against Culture lacks. In the Christ Against Culture camps, it's really, really hard to participate in the institutions of culture, which end up, in many ways, driving history. Uh, They end up affecting culture the most, these institutions like academia or entertainment and the arts, media, politics, etc., these institutes of culture are really difficult for people in the Christ Against Culture camp to participate in. What they end up doing, right, is they ended up trying to kind of create their own institutions, which is often what happened, right, with the development of uh, evangelical Christian schools and Christian music, Christian entertainment, even, even Christian television networks, this was created because the roadmap, there was no real navigable roadmap for participation in those institutions. What Christ above culture does is it does give Christians a roadmap for participating in these institutions of culture. But what it also does that the Christ of culture camp lacks is it also gives Christians the ability to have a prophetic voice of correction against sin in culture. Because they're able to say that simultaneously, Christ is, while working and uh, working within culture, he is also outside. He transcends culture as its source, and it simultaneously affirms the presence of sin. So wherever there is the presence of sin, there's the opportunity for prophetic correction of sin in culture. So this is a real advantage. Frequently, the goal of these kinds of Christians, the Christians that take this sort of posture towards culture, is a deep desire to live in moral unity and to have willing, using the language of Niebuhr here, willing and intelligent cooperation with non-believers in carrying on the work of the world. There can be a genuine partnership with institutions of culture, with even people that are involved in different religions, not just secular people. And again, as I've outlined in previous podcasts, there's no such thing really as secular, but that's a topic again for you can pick up in some other podcasts that gives people, Christians, a real opportunity to partner with those in those institutions, to work side by side with people who don't hold to the same view of special revelation. All you need is a shared affirmation of the value of reason and the inherent goodness that God put in the capability and possibility for reason to lead us to genuine truth, goodness, and beauty. Okay, so you might ask, though, what's the potential drawbacks of this one? What are the downsides to taking a Christ-above-culture approach? So here here are some problems Niebuhr and others have seen with the Christ-above-culture approach. And again, I want to bring up these critiques for each of these because I don't want any of you to hear any of these mediating, mediating positions go, boy, that's it right there, you know, and you, you blindly jump into it without assessing the possibility that there may be pitfalls in this sort of camp as well, in this theological perspective. One major problem with the Christ above culture approach is that it tends to be too easily institutionalized. 
That, that is to say, or to put it another way to use Niebuhr's language, that it can lead to the, quote, institutional, institutionalization of Christ and the gospel. Because the opportunity for genuine synthesis to happen between Christians and others that are in these significant institutions of culture is, is so possible, which is, which is one of the good things about it, especially for those that, again, experience this sort of Christ against culture background, and they always wrestled with, you know, perhaps a sense of calling to institutions of culture, but they couldn't see how they could fit. You know, there's this obvious strength in the Christ above culture approach, but it also can become its weakness it becomes a weakness when Christ and the gospel becomes institutionalized. And so we saw this throughout medieval history and church history, for example. I guess I shouldn't just say medieval history. It's still a problem today where Christ and the gospel still in some ways, like Christ of culture, becomes synonymous with the institutions of culture. And we see this oftentimes, again, when church and state for example, become married, become so intertwined that you can't tell where one ends and the other begins. It can also become really tricky in the area of culture as labor. Whereas, for example, the aesthetic of a culture, it's hard to find many downsides to the Christ above culture approach. But with labor, it can become a little bit more tricky. So, for example, should how much should the special revelation of the gospel influence labor and what people do, not only for work, but how, let's say, for example, economic systems function? Let's even make it more specific. If we were to compare, for, for example, capitalism with socialism— well, which one, which system, which, which system of labor, which economic system has more in keeping with the revelation of Christ? You know, there's been this popular resurgence of socialism and communism in some theological camps, even in some Christian camps, because many people in those camps have, and theolo theological voices have identified some of the flaws, the, we might say, potentially anti-gospel flaws of capitalism. And they'll point to some of the sort of ruthless, Darwinist, and I don't mean as in, you know, science, Dar Darwinian science, but I mean Darwinist as in sort of social Darwinism, this sort of survival of the fittest philosophy that, that many will point to, that sort of ruthless survival of the fittest philosophy in the work of people like Ayn Rand, for example, and those expressions of capitalism, and they will go, that's antichrist. But of course, then those that want to defend capitalism as the best sort of system of labor, the economic system, the best way to do uh, culture as labor, what they might respond back in, in, to the socialists and communists is they'll say, okay, so how are you going to redistribute the wealth? Will you be using violence? 
Will you be using the, the threat of state? How will you do this? Through violent coercion? That's Antichrist. And so that's just kind of maybe one of the examples of how a Christ above culture approach can, can have its own unique challenges. People with concerns about the institutionalization of Christianity or concern that perhaps Christ above culture trends too close to Christ of culture may find the next option that Niebuhr proposes intriguing. Niebuhr calls this next median position Christ and culture in paradox. And it has some similarities to Christ above culture. But whereas the latter seeks synthesis, the former sees tension and paradox in a dynamic process. Reason is employed in our relationship to our human neighbor, but revelation is the epistemological pathway to knowing God. So, Christ and culture and paradox presents a dualistic splitting of reality, and it puts an emphasis on the severe impacts of sin's alienation of individuals to God. Creation is broken. The fall has created this catastrophic, sinful condition. And in many ways, that sounds a lot like the attitudes of people in Christ against culture. But where it may differ is in an emphasis on the reality that God is still good in his governance of this broken creation. So, Christians may very well still justify the, the good use of things like science and math. But yet, simultaneously, this creation, because of its brokenness, is not only filled with examples of grace and mercy, but it's a place that God governs through his wrath. And it's this perspective which often will lead Christians to something people have called a two kingdoms approach, a la Martin Luther, that God's wrath is still necessary and it's demonstrated through one kingdom, the fallen, broken kingdom of human governments and culture, and yet a calling to Christians to demonstrate another kingdom, which may operate under a different set of rules in Christian community. For Christian communities and churches that might adopt this sort of Christ and culture and paradox position, there might be an attitude towards the way of larger meta-culture that says, well, that's just kind of the way things work out there. That's how things work in that sphere or that dominion, and God is just in his governance of that, and he is providentially seeing it through until the end of history. But in here, we have a different set of rules, a different way of doing things. And what happens in here, what happens in the church, can only be understood by someone who has entered into relationship with God, not through reason, but through faith. And so this is where, this is very much Lutheran sort of theology. This is very much, in many ways, you could say this is uh, a Kierkegaardian. Uh, Paul Vanderclay, who I interviewed in a previous episode, the intellectual dark web pastor, he's, he's kind of called it 
you know, the problem of what seems like God number one and God number two, the God that appears in special revelation and the God that appears in general revelation. So the Christ above culture camp seeks a synthesis. Christ in culture and paradox doesn't deny general revelation as opposed to special revelation. But what it would say is that there is a paradoxical relationship between the two. So to spell out a bit of like Kierkegaardian theology that might help you understand this, for Kierkegaard, the objective world, the, the world of you know math and, and science, was someone to simply try to understand and come to a conclusion on whether or not God exists and what he's like, using only information in that sort of world and that sort of domain, domain, that they would say that the, Kierkegaard would say, well, the evidence for the existence of God is ambiguous at best. So one is not truly knowing God until they step into the realm, the arena of special revelation, which is only accessed through faith. Now, again, while the first of this median mediating positions, the Christ above culture approach might sound more Catholic, this Christ and culture and paradox has, again, traditionally been more Protestant. This has been the Lutheran emphasis in some ways, Calvin, though I think guys, a guy like a Paul Vanderclay, for example, who is in, uh, you know, a Dutch Reformed tradition, or say the famed Reformed theologian Abraham Kuyper might be another example of someone who would be more in the Christ above culture camp, or he might be more closely aligned to that than he is to the Christ and culture and paradox camp. Nonetheless, I'd say for the most part, the sort of Lutheran, uh, Protestant theology has largely been this sort of Christ and culture and paradox. Now, this Christ and culture and paradox type can be a bit confusing. And a lot of the questions that people have when they try to understand or wrap their mind around this is, okay, how is this different than Christ against culture? On the surface, the theological differences may seem minimal. It seems like both Christ against culture and Christ and culture and paradox seem to place the primary emphasis on the fall as humans relate to creation, uh, reason, and as a subsequent a subset of those things, culture itself. So that's true. I mean, I would say that is primary. The emphasis in both of those camps are going to be the fall and brokenness of general revelation, the fall and brokenness of nature and reason. But what Christ and culture and paradox does a little more a little a little more strongly than the Christ against culture team is that they're going to say yes even though it's fallen god is good and again this is sort of where like reformed theology is an important part of this god is providentially still the author of history and he is providentially overseeing history he's providentially overseeing creation he's providentially overseeing culture and if god is good then what happens in culture is not entirely bad, not entirely evil. So you might think of Christ against culture as being perhaps, in some ways, it's more dualistic. So the Christ against culture team goes, 
that domain, the domain of culture, is governed by Satan almost, right? It is fallen and broken to the point where it is governed. And they might highlight texts like, you know, Jesus calling Satan the 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 god the the god of this world paul calling him the prince the archon of this age and they'll say see so that arena is is governed by the devil right christ and culture and paradox is again a little bit more on the reform side and they're going to highlight that culture is not governed by Satan. It's broken, but it's still governed by God. So one of the practical differences is that Christ and culture and paradox circles and communities don't seek to fully detach themselves from culture. They won't seek in a way to kind of create breakaway cultures entirely. They don't tend to what we might call cultural isolationism as much as Christ against culture camps. I frequently talk about, especially in the church that I work at, the, the, the now and not yet nature of the kingdom of God. Christ against culture goes, it's not yet. It is not yet. And out there, it is totally not yet. The kingdom of God is not there <laughs> Christ and culture and paradox seems to say, yes, it is not yet. It is to come. But because God is sovereign, it is still in some ways in the here and now. Christ's kingdom is present at work in culture. But in many ways, the activity of God in culture is simply a, a providential acting. It, it it's in many ways supernatural, right? So a lot of times communities that are in the Christ against or Christ and culture and paradox mindset will simply look at, let's say, something like civic government. And because they emphasize civic government as just primarily an instrument of restraint and something that God providentially uses to temporarily you know, restrain sin as an instrument of his wrath, they might have a harder time finding the sort of motivation to transform what is perceived to be outside of the church. And in this way, you know, sometimes people even make the case that the Apostle Paul had a Christ and culture and paradox perspective. And they'll, they'll bring up examples like, you know, Paul never condemned slavery because, well, in this sort of Christ and culture and paradox mindset, slavery is simply just a reality of the world out there. It's a reality of the culture of that kingdom. Now, we don't condone it, we don't practice it, but we don't necessarily feel a particular calling to go into culture to go into the kingdom of the world and to attempt to transform institutions in order to bring about the ending of slavery. Uh, and this is just, this is so key to help you guys understand church, different churches and how they operate. This is why, you know, maybe many of you that grew up in reformed influenced churches that perhaps have, though you didn't know it, this sort of Christ and culture and paradox uh, perspective, 
why you might think that they struggle to do, for example, what's been called like social justice and perhaps are even maybe skeptical of it. And there's an emphasis in those traditions on just individual transformation, right? This should hopefully help you make total sense of this because in many ways, the, the, the assumed theology... And again, I'm not making a case for or against it. I'm just bringing it up to help you guys understand these positions. The assumed theology is, again, this two kingdoms mindset. And out there, it's not really up to us to bring the transformation. What we're called to do is focus on transforming the community of God and being a faithful witness to the world. This is also why in many places of the world where there is heavily institutionalized Christianity, where Christ above culture ran amok, churches arise with sort of pietist tradition, sort of congregational um, reformed tradition sprang up as a response to that because there was something when there was a problem when perhaps Christ above culture moved too much into Christ of culture and Christianity became institutionalized that what ended up happening was there was no clear distinction between the witness of Christ and the witness of Christendom. And this is what drew Kierkegaard insane. This is what has driven so many, you know, faithful followers of Jesus bonkers over the centuries. But just think of the example of Kierkegaard in, you know, 19th century Denmark, institutionalized church-state situation. And what he saw was that the church had lost its prophetic witness. It had lost its prophetic witness because it had become institutionalized and synonymous with the larger culture. So one of the things that Christ in culture and paradox, a major strength of them, and this is why I love talking about this stuff, because these mediating positions, you could go, oh, I, I see some good in that. And in other cases, you might go, oh, there's some real downsides. One of the good things about Christ and culture and paradox is you see this, this emphasis on going, you know, okay, we need to be the people of God in our own communities first. And transformation starts here. It starts with the individual. And before we start trying to go change entire, you know, social structures, institutional structures, the, the change should happen right here. And we should remain as a faithful witness and allow God to do the work that perhaps is beyond our capability to do in and of ourselves. So there are really good, good things about this Christ and culture and paradox position. A practical challenge, though, that comes about and a critique people have, and I've brought up some already, but a critique people have of the Christ and culture and paradox outlook or type is that it tends towards a certain sort of cultural conservatism. It's so difficult for people to be able to distinguish between their culturally inherited definitions of right and wrong, especially when they come from a place that has had institutionalized Christianity. It can be so difficult for them to be able to distinguish between a sort of just mindless conservatism and the prophetic witness of Christ 
transformative work of the gospel. So as I already mentioned, you might have a tendency in these sorts of camps to, to not work to do things like perhaps end slavery or to participate in some sort of cultural transformation. There might also be a, a sort of disengagement aesthetically you know, Calvin Calvin was notorious for actually John Calvin was fairly notorious for having what we might say is a, a low a lower view of the arts, and you might walk into um, many churches that might really have this sort of Christ and culture and paradox mindset, and you might you you might find them a bit lacking in the arts is one way of putting it whether that's in their musical expression, whether that is in the visual arts, for example. Sometimes the, the churches can be a bit Spartan. And what gets elevated in place of the arts in their liturgy is the sermon. So the sermon oftentimes in these sorts of communities ends up being the, the main course, if you will. And you can see once you've kind of understood this sort of theology of culture, you can see why the sermon is is so frequently the main course, and that that's that's because again the the idea is that it's the gospel that governs this domain, right? So the, the gospel and special revelation is what governs this domain, and so what we want to do is have that which governs this domain, the thing that is over the top of this kingdom, the king in the top of this kingdom, be the thing that is most elevated and most thought of and most practiced. So, you know, another immense positive, another great positive that comes from Christ and culture and paradox communities is frequently this like really high value for scripture and people being well educated in the scriptures. One final downside, and I have to bring this up because the Nazis came up in the first episode, so they have to come up today. You know, one massive downside to Christ and culture and paradox is that it creates this two kingdoms realm. And as we've already talked about here, sometimes uh, Christian communities feel as if like, what business is it of mine to judge the world? One of the other forces at play in Nazi Germany in the 30s and into the 40s was this two kingdoms, Luther mentality, this Christ and culture and paradox mentality. Yes, as I talked about last podcast, there was a stream of influence from this Christ of culture, this this liberal German theology, this philosophy of, of, of Hegel and Schleiermacher, but that you also have even perhaps deeper and more powerfully than that, but yet simultaneously running alongside of that in the 30s, you had this Lutheran Christ and culture and paradox. So while there, I'm sure, were people at the time that had perhaps outrage or disdain for Nazi ideology that were Christians, Many of them felt as if that was simply what happens in that kingdom. And perhaps what God is even doing in our German government, though we can be against it, we can be in theory against it, especially if it were to happen in our Christian community, 
might just be God's providential working in the world to execute his divine wrath. So you might have had German Christians that looked at the Nazi movement and went, well, again, what business is it of mine to interfere with that? That thing is going to play itself out, God is sovereign. And what we're going to focus on is Christian community here. You have that running alongside this very strong Christ of culture mindset, which is like, no, 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 no. Christ is found in progress. Christ is found in the values of our, of our culture. And so these, these dynamics playing together created this terrible recipe for, you know, the horrific atrocities of Nazi Germany. So it wouldn't, (laughs) wouldn't be a podcast if the Nazis didn't come up, right? If Christ above culture was a synthesis view of Christ's relationship and Christian relationship to culture, and if Christ and culture and paradox was a paradoxical view, a paradoxical relationship between Christians and culture, is there a way of converting culture, transforming culture, neither simply synthesizing or living in the paradox, but actually transforming and converting it. Niebuhr certainly thought so, and that's why he called his third mediating position Christ the transformer of culture, or the conversionist type. Like the previous view, the conversionist view sees the effects of sin as radical and far-reaching, But instead of simply emphasizing God's protective governance of creation, Christians in this view emphasize God's incarnational and redemptive activity in the world. Faith in Christ restores the full capacity of reason through the reuniting of bonds between between God and humans. In this way, humans, as the participants and creators of culture— may be transformed by Christ in conversion and hence produce transformation in culture. A, this is where he gets the language right, a conversion of culture. God created nature as good, but it's corrupted and therefore not completely trustworthy. Natural law is therefore not totally trustworthy. It's distorted. There is this activity of broken, sinful human reasoning. We have these values of common grace and and goodness, which all humans everywhere experience, no matter if they are a Christian or not. But our notions of what's true, beautiful, and good are disordered. They're incomplete. The ditch on both sides the ditch between the overemphasis on the brokenness of creation and the ditch on the other side of assuming that everything that's happening in the world is happening just as God intends it to be. In between there is a mediating ground even within these mediating positions. For Niebuhr, there's a mediating position between Christ and culture and paradox and Christ above culture. In a sense, we could say the the tension between even these two positions is solved in incarnation. It's solved in incarnational theology. So God has stepped into human history. God has stepped 
into the person, the Jewish-born Jesus of Nazareth. He has stepped into human nature to transform it. So humans are not flawed beyond the point of total rejection and abandonment, nor are they affirmed as being without flaw and without need for transformation. The incarnation then becomes the map for navigating culture. Our stories, our artwork, our labor and work are neither fundamentally good nor fundamentally bad. As a creation of human beings, as what like Tolkien called sub-creators, right? As sub-creators, we create in alignment with the image of the God that we worship. In many ways, I think ancient people got this better because ancient people, unlike us today, we live in this dominant, this culture that has this sort of dominant narrative of naturalism. But in ancient civilizations where the spiritual world, the world of the gods and the world of human culture were much more closely linked together, the ancient people got that their spirit, their aesthetic and their labor reflected the gods that they worshipped. And so that's why there was this pantheon. And that's why, in many ways, this sort of pantheon of gods that ancient civilizations and cultures has makes so much sense because they understood that behind the stories they told, the things they created, the work that they did was something transcendent that moved them, that there was something beyond the imminent that dictated their cultural values, which then dictated their spirit, aesthetic, and labor. So for Niebuhr, the call of the the Christian is to be in this transformative role. So we are to look at the areas of culture that reflect God's activity, that reflect Christ's activity. They're in alignment with the spirit who is the spirit of God. So this is where, oh man, this is, I'm nerding out here, theologically nerding out, but I hope you are too. This stuff just all comes together so beautifully. The Holy Spirit, the spirit of God is the author of the Christian story. We see God's redemptive story in the biblical narrative But if we're going to affirm that, we're going to affirm the biblical narrative as inspired, we also have to affirm that God has worked through culture because the biblical narrative was written in a language. It contains God's actings in history with real people in real cultures that had strange practices like animal sacrifice, things that are so foreign to us. The gospel was then traveled and brought about on roads built by Romans and proclaimed in a language, a Greek language that had become universal because of people like Alexander the Great. And that stuff doesn't make sense if you adapt the Christ against culture mindset. But you also can't make sense of the meta narrative of the gospel. You also can't make sense of it if you are in the Christ of culture camp. Because simultaneously, the Christian community, and we could even go back before the Christian community, the very Christ we claim to worship 
was crucified by his culture. The early Christian community was rejected by the larger Greco-Roman culture, and yet they went proclaiming in the face of a world that screamed, Caesar is Lord, these people went out and proclaimed wherever they could that Jesus was Lord. A very counter-cultural statement, if there ever was one. I heard somebody put it like this, and I've used it for many, many years. Imagine walking around the Roman Empire is a bit like, say, walking around a, a Target store, right? Tar I'm here in Minneapolis. Target's headquarters are here. When you walk around Target, what do you see? You see that red Target bullseye everywhere. That's the logo that tells you you are in Target. Well, if you were to walk around the Roman Empire in the first and second century, you would see, no matter where you went, the like the Target logo, you would see the sign, Caesar is Lord. And yet, within that culture, this countercultural community was proclaiming the lordship of Jesus. And you could see why the powers that be wanted to kill them. And yet in the face of that, though, again, like I talked about in the first podcast, there were people like Tertullian who suggested in many ways that, you know, Christians just create this breakaway community. And so many ways, early Christian community was marked by differences in their own local practices from the larger culture, they did not completely remove themselves from culture. And we see in the work of people like Justin Martyr, for example, or we see in the work of people like Irenaeus, this sort of cultural theology that said, well, hang on a second. You know, Justin Martyr thought, you know, he thought that God was at work in the Greeks long before Christ came, just like he was at work in the Jews long before Christ came. Justin Martyr saw that at work in some of the stuff that was brought about in Greek philosophy, a Greek philosophy that people like John, as we talked about last episode, and John 1 used, people like the Apostle Paul used. It's So God is at work, but he is transforming it. And so the Christian call then is to be in the world, but not of it. Niebuhr puts it like this, the vision of the good in Christ and the reception of the final commandment through him are to be used for the restoration of the corrupted order in nature culture, for the reinterpretation of the natural imperatives. Or maybe I, I might put it like this, that... The Christian that is attempting to be a transformer of culture doesn't just work for the conservation of God's activity in the past, nor do they simply await God's activity in the future, but they constantly work towards, and this is a quote here from Niebuhr, borrowing this phrase from Niebuhr, they constantly work towards, quote, divine possibility of a present renewal. All right, so obviously, you know, I'm bringing this from Niebuhr's perspective, and Niebuhr admittedly says, you know, this is the perspective he's in favor of. And people after Niebuhr have brought up critiques about, well, obviously, this sounds like the best option, Christ the transformer of culture. That, that seems like the thing every Christian should do. 
But there have been some critiques, and I even have my own critiques or questions that I would bring up. The first critique is this. You know, a lot of times people can read Niebuhr's book and they obviously they get to the end of it and they go, I'm going to be, I want to be a transformer of culture. In order to do that, we still have to answer the question of, well, how should things ought to be? And if we're working towards the transformation of culture so that the world would become more and more Christ-like, we still have to deal with the problem of what, what is Christ actually like? So you might get somebody really well-intended. You could get Christians together that are really well-intended about being agents of transformation in their culture. And, and they both might have very different ideas on how things ought to be. And why is that? And I don't want to cause your brain to explode. Maybe it has already at this point. <laughs> but why is that? Why do we have these differences between even people that are very, very earnest in how they want to see culture transformed for Christ? Well, <laughs> because our very notions of what Christ was like and is like pass through our cultural lenses. So when we read the Bible... We read the Bible through impacted and colored in some way through our own cultural lenses. But I bring that up not to encourage anyone to be apathetic, but rather to encourage us towards humility and charity in our conversations with each other, to encourage us to be charitable in our disputes, to encourage us to be humble and having our own notions of what Christ is actually like challenged. And, and this is why we need to constantly expose ourselves to different perspectives, different opinions. We need to expose ourselves to different cultures because this is what helps us to see in our theological blind spots. Well, I am curious to hear from some of you guys which of these mediating positions has resonated with you most obviously. The Christ the, Christ the Transformer of Culture has the most positive language associated with it. But I, I'm really curious, as you were listening, maybe this is the first time you've been exposed to these ideas between Christ above culture and Christ in culture in paradox, which one of those two you found to be more appealing? Or maybe you realize now as you hear some of that, that maybe you've grown up or you've spent some time in Christian communities that have actually emphasized those things. I'd love to hear from you. What have you learned in either living in those communities or as you reflect on those sorts of postures towards culture? You know, it's funny, even for me personally, I, I love both Thomas Aquinas and Soren Kierkegaard. And Aquinas is very much, you know, Christ above culture, and Kierkegaard is very much Christ in culture in paradox. And I have learned so much from both, but I sometimes, even personally, still wrestle to see how do these two, how do these two come together? And so maybe there's some puzzles you've been trying to figure out as you've been listening to this. I'd love to hear from you. So uh, reach out to me. You can find me on Twitter at Paul Anleitner. You can also reach out to me leaving a comment on Podbean or the podcast platform of your choice. I also want to invite you to 
if this podcast is been in any way uh, of value to you, if you're learning from it, if you're enjoying engaging with these ideas and having these sorts of discussions and ruminating on these these topics, I would invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That's the primary place people go to find new podcasts, to listen to podcasts. So if you had 30 seconds to go over and leave as many stars as you think this deserves and to, to even give any like, you know, written feedback that might help someone else figure out if this is going to be for them or not, that would be huge. It would be a tremendous benefit. You can also support this work that I'm doing by sharing this with a friend, send them a message, send somebody an email that you might think man, they really need to learn something. No. Uh, send them an email, tell them, hey, yeah, I thought you might like this. Um, if there's a particular topic, one of the episodes I've done that you think would help somebody share it with them, I'd be surprised. And then finally, we also do have the opportunity to support this podcast work I'm doing on Patreon. You can support it financially through that avenue. You'll find a link to my Patreon page in the description of this podcast. Thanks for listening, guys, and we'll talk again soon.